So far, we have covered four points of the parable of the log. The sutta in which the Buddha explained eight faults which prevent a log floating down the river Ganges from reaching the ocean, or eight faults which prevent a person from reaching the ocean of Nibbana. Although the Buddha addressed a group of 500 monks when he was delivering this discourse, the same advice is valid for any person who practices the Dhamma. To practice the Dhamma means to discover the natural laws that are working in our body and mind. And as they are natural laws, they apply equally to everything and everybody, regardless whether one is a nun, a monk, a laywoman or a layman. The Buddha's eye of wisdom encompasses everything that can be known. This omniscience is one of the characteristics of a Buddha. Although the Buddha saw very clearly that on the absolute level there exists no man, no woman, no celestial beings, no animals, he still used these words in his discourses. He used them as a means for easy communication. When the Buddha used these words, he was very well that he was only using a concept which conceals the true nature of it. So when he used the words humans and non-humans to explain the next two points in the Sutta, he was very well very well aware of that fact. These two points are to be taken by humans and to be taken by non-humans. In that sutta he said, if the log which is floating down in the river Ganges is taken by humans or by non-humans, then it will not reach the ocean. So, what does this point, to be taken by humans, mean? This means um, to mix with people in an improper way. As this discourse was delivered to a group of monks, um, he referred to, um, mixing, uh, to monks mixing with lay people in an improper way. But even as lay people, we can mix with other people in an improper way, or we can associate with other people, which is not beneficial for us or other beings. We can divide people into four groups. The first group is the community person or the business person, and this includes also politicians. Such a person is said to engage in matters concerning the community he or she is living in, which can mean one's village, town or city, one's state or one's country, or matters concerning the whole world. So by engaging in these matters, this person forgets or has no time or no opportunity to perform wholesome meritorious deeds, such as practicing generosity or practicing meditation. The second group is the family person. Such a person takes care of his or her partner and children and supports them to the extent that there is no more time and energy left to engage in a spiritual practice. Now the third group is the lazy person, the lazy bone. 
such a person is too lazy to engage in anything which would increase his or her wealth or learning. And such a person is also too lazy to engage in any charity work or do volunteer service in the community. Such a person is just lazy, wasting his time and life. And the fourth group, that's the Dhamma person. Such a person engages in matters related to the Buddha Dhamma, which means uh, matters relating to the teachings of the Buddha. And this may be working as a volunteer in a center or in a monastery, reading the scriptures, learning the scriptures, or teaching them, or practicing meditation, or supporting monks and nuns or lay practitioners in their meditation practice, or any other kind of work to support and spread the Dhamma. Some of the characteristics of a Dhamma person are such a person is easily contented, or such a person knows to cut down meaningless activities. Such a person also refrains from outer stimuli for one's happiness, all the range of entertainment. And such a person has good and blameless conduct, which means not harming or hurting any other beings. If we belong to the first three groups, or a combination of them, that means the community person, the family person, or the lazy person, then one is said to be taken away by humans. That's why we should strive to become a Dhamma person, so that we can escape the danger of being taken by humans. Of course, being a Dhamma person doesn't mean that we cannot be a community person or a family person at the same time. We might even fall into the category of the lazy person at times. So even if we are engaged in worldly matters by working for our livelihood or for caring for our family, we still can be a Dhamma person. We just need to make sure that our heart is deeply rooted in the Dhamma, that we take refuge in the Triple Gem and not taking refuge in worldly idols such as power, fame, authority, or sensual pleasures. When it is our sincere wish to practice the Buddha Dhamma in order to become liberated, then we align our worldly engagement with these goals and act accordingly. Nevertheless, it can be quite demanding and challenging to combine our worldly obligations with our spiritual goals. The world out there is full of imperfections and calls for our attention to fix it or to improve it. Even if we do it with the best of our intentions, it's difficult to get it ever perfect or to bring it to a state when nothing needs to be fixed anymore. This is the great danger because we can get drawn into it to such a degree that we lose the perspective and the overview. We just see that there is more to be done, things to be improved, conditions to be changed, or structures 
to be abolished. And then, when we are successful, we feel compelled to do the next step as well. And so this can keep us busy to the extent that we neglect the more meaningful aspects of our human life, namely the beautification of our hearts and minds. In the end, the world doesn't become a better place by imposing changes or by imposing laws or by having more peace conferences, while at the same time more money is spent to, pro, uh, to, produ to, to produce more weapons. A radical change and transformation is only possible when it comes from within. As long as, our, as greed, aversion and delusion are not reduced and uprooted in our minds, the world will not become a better place. All the wars that have been fought over the last century have not been able to make the human race a happier and more contented one. I have read that all the wars in the last century, which was just finishing a few years ago, that during all these wars, over 100 million of people have died. And all this in the name of bringing peace and happiness to the world. It's so absurd and doesn't make sense at all. And even at the outset of this century, wars, conflicts are still the common forms of solving, uh, of solving problems, of bringing peace and happiness to this planet. At least, this is what the politicians are promising us all the time. But we just need to look around. People's minds are in a worse state than ever. There is so much confusion misery, depression, frustration, and meaningless around. The great sages of the past and the present tell us time and again that wars, that the wars out there will not stop, will only stop when the wars within have completely stopped. As long as we are run by our egocentric minds with its likes and dislikes, how can we ask for the wars out there to stop? Worldly pursuits are endless and if we are not careful, we can be totally and completely consumed by them. Milarepa, a great Tibetan yogi and saint, he said, there is no end to worldly pursuits. They only stop when you end. And in the face of what really matters or what is really important in our lives, we have to admit that all the big and small successes do not really matter when we face death. We are so skilled in keeping us busy, even doing relatively worth, worthwhile activities, that we are not aware of the fact that we are actually busy trying to avoid one thing. And this one thing is to purify our hearts and minds and to make peace within. Mingo Rinpoche, a Tibetan um, meditation teacher, actually calls this busyness a form of laziness. In his own words, 
Our ceaseless, ceaseless activity and our avoidance of what is really important is actually laziness. Striving so hard to score small successes, we disguise the fact that you are actually being lazy. The Buddha was very well aware that for many of his monks and for many people in general, it was very difficult to resist the temptation of engaging in worldly matters. As worldlings look at the world with dirty glasses, it's tremendously difficult to see the pitfalls when doing so. But the Buddha and other realized beings have come to understand that in the end, that there is really nothing more uh, important and worthwhile than purifying our hearts and minds. That's why he told his monks in his discourse of the parable of the log to be careful not to be taken away by human beings. And the next point, to be taken away by non-humans. What does this mean? It means that the person dedicates all the merits of a good and wholesome deed to be reborn in the Deva realm in order to enjoy all the sense pleasures and luxuries of the Devas. The Devas are some kind of celestial beings who live in the heavenly realms, enjoying all kinds of sense pleasures and luxuries. It is said that one is reborn in these heavenly realms due to one's merit gained by performing acts of generosity, by keeping the precepts or by engaging in other wholesome activities. According to the Buddhist cosmology, there exist altogether six different deva realms. These planes of existence, they involve um, a longer lifespan than in the human world and a much richer variety of sense pleasures. However, all these sense pleasures are also impermanent and the devas too, they have to die one day. As death approaches for a deva, there are five signs. These are the flowers that they are adorned with, they start to wither. Their clothes become dirty. Sweat comes out under their armpits their bodies become unsightly and they get restless. Devas, they are born spontaneously. They are not born from a womb. And once they are born, they always look like young, healthy and strong people. It is said that female devas look always like 16-year-old um, young women and male devas like 20-year-old uh, handsome um, devas. And only shortly before they die, these five signs then will appear. And their lifespan ranges from 500 to 16,000 celestial years. What this means can be uh, explained in this way. In the lowest of these Deva realms, 50 human years is one day in their life. So although they live for a long, long time, their life is not permanent and they are subject to death as well. When they die, 
they are reborn again. And so they are still undergoing the cycle of old age, um, birth, uh, birth, old age, sickness and death, as any other uh, beings do. But for many people, the fact that these devas can live a life surrounded by these sense pleasures and luxuries for a very, very long time makes it very tempting to dedicate all their merits for being reborn in the deva world. The prospect of enjoying nice, pleasurable, attractive things for hundreds or thousands of years without having worries of losing them, this propels them to dedicate the merit for a rebirth as a deva. So this is meant what uh, Buddha said when he uh, said to be taken away by non-humans. As I said in the beginning, all the Buddha's teachings were given with the aim of leading people out of their unsatisfactoriness and suffering to a state of perfect peace and happiness. Even if the happiness is much greater in these heavenly realms, the beings there are still subject to birth and death. And as long as one is caught in the cycle of samsara, there cannot be perfect and lasting happiness. That's why the Buddha said that one should dedicate one's merit only to the attainment of Nibbana, which is the state where all suffering ceases, or in other words, the state of perfect and lasting peace and happiness, and where the thirst for any pleasurable object is completely quenched. For Burmese people, the existence of devas is quite real, although one cannot see them with our human eyes. The deva world is depicted as a place where everything is beautiful, a beautiful scenery with gorgeous mountains, with golden forests and deep blue lakes, with pristine clear rivers, and with beautifully adorned mansions and cities, with lush green gardens and fragrant flowers. Burmese people, they even compare some Western countries, like Switzerland or the US, um, to the Deva world. For them, for example, Switzerland is the Deva realm on Earth. The picture they have of Switzerland fits perfectly with the description of the Deva realm. During my many years of staying in Burma, um, I've come across this statement quite many times people telling me that I live, or that I have lived in the Deva world uh, on Earth. Even if I try to explain them that this picture was a too idealistic way of looking at Switzerland, they couldn't really understand why people in Switzerland would be suffering as well. When I was reflecting about this statement and trying to look from their perspective, it occurred to me that, as a matter of fact, even the dogs have uh, a nicer life than most of the people have in Burma. In Switzerland, there are no stray dogs. All the dogs have an owner who feeds them regularly. Many dogs are washed and trimmed regularly. So many, most of the dogs, they have a very nice and good place 
to stay and are well cared for. Many unfortunate people in Burma and elsewhere in the world can only dream of having such nice and good conditions. Their standard of living is much worse, always living in great insecurity of how and where to get the next meal, for example. In the commentary to the Dhammapada, there is a story which shows that becoming a dog was preferable for a man, um, was preferable to the conditions that a man was living in as a human being. At one time, there was a famine in the town of Alagaba. And so this couple left the town and walked for many days. Then one day they came across a house in which a big celebration took place. They were invited into the house and they were heartedly welcomed by the owner and were invited to have a meal. And the owner himself offered them delicious butter rice and delicious curries. And after the owner had fed this hungry, served this hungry couple, he served the same butter rice and the same curries to the dog which was lying in the corner of the room. The husband of that hungry couple looked at the dog and thought, it's very fortunate to become a dog in this house. The dog in this house gets such nice and delicious food every day. And so his mind inclined to become a dog in this house as the condition seemed so favorable, much better than the condition he was in. And as he hadn't eaten for several days and felt very hungry, he ate too much of this delicious food. And the same afternoon, uh, he died of indigestion. And it is said that he took rebirth in the womb of that dog in that house. And a couple of months later, was reborn there as a little tame puppy. As at the time of his death, his mind was inclined to being a dog in that house. He um, got reborn there as a little puppy. We must remember that his situation was really not a very fortunate one. And so it seemed to be much more fortunate to be a dog in that house. So after having made this little excursion from the Deva world to Switzerland, to the dog world, let's go back to the Deva world. Or to be more precise, to the desire to be reborn as a Deva. In the scriptures, we have this story about Patipujiga. See, she was so much attached to the Deva world that when she was reborn as a human being, all she wanted, um, that all she wanted was to be reborn uh, in the Deva world. Patipujiga was one of the female devas living in the company of a male deva called Malabari. She and other devas, they picked flowers every day and then they adorned these flowers uh, on Malabari. So one day while she was picking flowers, she passed away and then she was reborn as the daughter of a very rich man in Savati. And that took place at the time when the Buddha was living. 
and right from um, her birth in the human world, she could remember her past life as a deva. This ability to remember one's past life is called Jati Sara Jnana. Even today, there are some people who can recall their past life. They know exactly where they lived, what name they were given, and they even can tell where certain things are stored away. So Patipujiga would also recall very clearly her life in the Deva world. And so she wasn't happy in the human world at all. All she wanted was to go back and be in the company of Malabari. So for this end, she took refuge in the Triple Gem and she pre performed meritorious deeds such as practicing generosity, listening to the Buddha's Dhamma talks, keeping the precepts, or going to the monastery and help there. And whenever she performed these wholesome acts, she dedicated it for being reborn in the Deva realm. When she came of age, she was married, she had children, and so she lived her life. When she was old, she passed away, and her wish was fulfilled. She was reborn in the Deva world, in the company of Malabari. So she was again a Deva in the Deva world, and so she was happy, at least for the time being. And exactly this is the great danger of being reborn in the heavenly realms. As the devas are always surrounded by nice and pleasurable objects, they are not aware of the suffering or unsatisfactory nature of life. And so they see no urgency to practice the Dhamma. Life is too nice, too pleasurable. Why to worry about it? That's why it is said to be reborn as a human being is actually more beneficial. In the human realm, we experience a mixture of happiness and unhappiness or misery. And therefore, we are much more inclined to practice the Dhamma in order to overcome our unhappiness. So what we see from these stories is the importance of our goals towards which we direct and incline our mind. That is, our desire, wishes or attachments. But it doesn't mean that by wishing, desiring alone, we can be reborn where we want. To be reborn where we want, in a certain place or under certain conditions, we must be endowed <coughs> with the conditions and virtues that are necessary to get this desired rebirth. <coughs> For example, to be reborn in the Deva realm, like Patipujiga, one must have performed wholesome acts, such as practicing generosity, keeping the precepts. Without that, wishing to be reborn in the Deva world would be useless. Our goals and desires give the mind a certain direction. And so the outcome of our actions are based on what we value in our life. Behind all of our actions, body, speech and mind, there is always a desire 
or a will, an intention. And sometimes this intention or volition is strong and obvious. Other times it's rather weak and not obvious at all. And it is this intention or volition that the Buddha called Kama. Kama actually means action or deed. But in Buddhism, it's only the intentional or the volitional actions of body, speech and mind, which we refer to as Kama. And Kama or volition has the potential to give results. And this potential is a tremendous force. Because karma doesn't end with the demise of this life, but it goes on. But we cannot say that this karma is stored somewhere in our body or consciousness, because this body and the mind they are impermanent and changing all the time. Kama is likewise impermanent, but it leaves the potential in the repeated appearances of beings. And so when conditions and circumstances are right or favorable for results to appear, then those effects take place. In the same way as fire or wind are not stored anywhere in the universe but come, on, come into um, existence under certain conditions, so does the effect of karma only arise when the necessary circumstances and conditions are there. To illustrate this in the scriptures, we have the following simile. It's the simile, the example of the sun, the cow dung, and the gem. And the gem that refers to, or should be taken uh, as a magnifying glass. So when there is sun, and you put a gem or a magnifying glass over that right cow dung, then you get fire. We cannot say that the fire was stored in the cow dung or in the gem, the magnifying glass or the sun, but when these things come together in the right way, then we get a fire. The circumstances were favorable for fire to appear. Likewise, it is with karma. Karma and its results, they are not the same thing. Karma is the cause, and the effects resulting from a karma, from a cause, they are called vipaka, or we can call it the fruit of a karma. So, Kama, a volitional action, leaves the potential for a fruit or for an effect to take place. But then, the way how we react to such an effect, that's another, a new action that we perform in the present. In connection with this, the Buddha said, what you are is what you have been. What you will be is what you do now. I repeat it. What you are is what you have been. What you will be is what you do now. Sometimes this law of karma is seen as kind of a fatalism or a doctrine of 
predetermination. But as we have seen, karma only means the volitional actions of body, speech and mind. And they give rise to certain effects when their circumstances and conditions are right. But the way how we react to these effects are not governed by the old karma. The reaction is a new action that takes place in the present and we have it in our hands to react wisely and skillfully. <clears throat> we are not the victims of fate or the uh, difficult or painful situations are not the punishment from some higher force or some god. We are only the victims of our own ignorance. Out of not knowing, we engage in all sorts of actions and reactions, being unaware that unwholesome actions create unwholesome karma and that this unwholesome karma has the potentiality to give unwholesome results, effects. And having created karma, it's nobody else than ourselves who will um, reap the effects, <coughs> the results of, the, of this karma. Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism to Tibet, he put it this way, if you want to know your past life, look at your present condition. If you want to know your future life, look at your present actions. I say it again. If you want to, if you want to know your past life, look into your present condition. If you want to know your future life, Look at your present actions. With this we come to see that by understanding karma and its effects, we have to take responsibility for our own lives. We ourselves are the creator of happiness and we ourselves are the creator of unhappiness, misery. Never can we put the blame on somebody else or on outer circumstances. In the Brahma Viharas or the Divine Abidings, we have the practice of equanimity. In order to develop this state of equanimity, Upeka in Pali, a meditator repeats the following phrase. Um, again and again. In Pali it is Sabe Sata Kama Saka. This means all beings have Kama as their own property, or all beings are the heirs of their actions. Kama makes all beings responsible for their own misery and happiness. Nothing happens according to one's wishes or desires, but according to one's own karma. So we have to become self-reliant and take the full responsibility for all of our actions. Coming back to the parable of the log, the Buddha pointed out that dedicating one's merit, dedicating the merit of one's wholesome deeds to become a deva is one of the eight faults that prevents a person uh, to become enlightened. And in the Sutta, this is expressed with the simile of taken by non-humans. 
we have to be very careful about our intentions and volitions on one hand and on the other hand we have to be careful of our goals and aims in our life. Even doing good and wholesome deeds is not enough. We have to do it with the proper motivation and intention. If you really want to be liberated from all that causes unhappiness and pain and misery, we have to turn our heart into the direction of liberation and dedicate all our merit from our wholesome actions for the attainment of enlightenment. The next point that the Buddha pointed out in his discourse was sinking into a whirlpool. And with this he was referring to indulging in sense pleasures. The Buddha compared indulging in sense pleasures with a whirlpool. Any object that comes near uh, the swirl of a whirlpool is inevitably drawn down, uh, drawn into the swirl and then drawn down into the water. Once an object or a person is caught in a whirlpool, then the object, the person, is drawn downwards into the water and it's almost impossible to come up again. So these sense pleasures are like whirlpools for human beings. We all have probably seen a whirlpool before, be it out in nature, in a lake or a river or at the shore of the ocean, or being beat at home when we let out the water of the bathtub or the sink. So the water is spinning and then draws everything down. In our ignorance, we only see the nice, pleasurable and enjoyable side of these pleasures without having any idea of their dangerous and unwholesome nature. We blindly follow all our desires, attachments and cravings to gratify our thirst for happiness with the enjoyment of these pleasurable things. The eye constantly craves for nice and pleasurable sights. The ear craves for nice and lovely sounds. The nose craves for nice and pleasurable smells, fragrances. The tongue only wants taste good and delicious tastes. And the body only wants to come in contact with nice and pleasurable touching sensations. As it is our basic human wish to be happy and well, we are ever ready to engage in any activity that promises to bring about this happiness and peace. Our Western materialistic world has become very good and sophisticated in inventing and producing ever new commodities and goods with the promise to make people happy. And this has led to a society of consumerism. In the past 30 years or so, the range of new products that have appeared on the market is just incredible. And each time a new product appears on the market, the media tell us constantly that this product will make us really and finally happy. But then, two years later, our computer or skiing equipment 
or the coffee maker are already outdated, almost antiques. And so then the media tells us that we need to get the latest thing and promises us that this time it will make us really and finally happy. And people go for it, always thinking that there must be a time when they will get the right thing containing the unshakable happiness that they are so dearly looking for. In the wake of this consumerism, it's not only a never-ending array of goods that are invented and produced, but over the past years, it's also increasingly different kinds of services or different kinds of activities that are offered with the promise to make us happy. Things like bungee jumping or going for a wilderness trip to Alaska or go diving in the Great Barrier Reef in Australia or do a course in calligraphy. These are just a few examples of these activities or services. And the promise here is that, that one can buy a positive experience and that enough of these pursued and consumed will deliver, uh, this will deliver and sustain our sense of happiness. And then, of course, there is this whole um, movie, entertainment and communication industry, which is getting more and more absurd. It's alarming to see that many people cannot live and therefore not be happy anymore without listening to their favorite music while walking down to the bus stop or without being talking to one's friend while riding a bus or without looking at the latest DVD, taking a train ride. The source of their happiness lies out there in these goods or activities, services. And because it's the nature of these things or experiences to deteriorate and to come to an end, then they need to replace it time and again. And most people do this unknowingly. And because they are so readily available for most of the people, people are attracted to them like moths to light. I think all of you have seen moths which are attracted to light and so then keep buzzing around this source of light, not going anywhere else anymore. And if the source of light is a flame of a candle or an oil lamp or a fire, then it can be fatal for this moth when it goes too close to it. Lama Yeshe, who was a famous Tibetan teacher, he put it in this way, bringing your deluded mind to samsaric places is like bringing a piece of paper close to a fire. Here in the Western countries, we think that we have liberated ourselves from everything that undermines our freedom. We have freedom of speech, we have freedom of religion, the freedom of choosing our partner, the freedom to wear any clothes we like, the freedom <coughs> of having gatherings and meetings, just to name a few. As we know, there are still many countries on this earth 
where people do not have these kinds of freedom. So we are very fortunate to live in countries where we have these kinds of freedoms. I remember when I was a kid, um, the USA was really praised as a country with the unlimited opportunities. Just go there and you are free to do whatever you want. More than ever, people find themselves in a position which allows them to enjoy whatever they want, almost everywhere and anytime. Feeling like eating a pizza or having some Asian food or some, having some Greek food. Just go around the corner and you can get it there or you can order it by telephone or feeling like seeing a movie, just go to the next video shop around the corner and get it there. Or you feel like talking to your friend in Sweden, just hang on to the phone. A few seconds you are connected to her. So people take this for freedom and believe that this will increase and sustain their happiness. If this were true, then in the Western countries we must have the happiest people on earth. The reality, however, is different. As a matter of fact, it is exactly in these countries that the rate of people suffering from unhappiness and depression uh, is much bigger. People are not aware that they are actually not free, but that they are slaves to their endless desire, wants and cravings. Even if we think that we live in a free country, we are actually imprisoned by our compulsive cravings wants and desires. There is no freedom at all in these activities. People are just compulsively acting under the dictate of their desires and the so much hoped for happiness. Sayadaw Upandita, a famous Burmese meditation teacher, said on one of his visits to the States, in this country, there are lots of sensual pleasures freely available. People are pulled down by the gravity of sensual pleasures. Once they can resist the pull of this gravity, there can be many more monks, maybe also nuns. When people let their actions run freely, their mouths run freely, their minds run freely, it doesn't take much pull for them to fall in. Even with a slight gravitational pull, they dive into sensual pleasures. Isn't that true? That's Sayada Upandita. If we do not want to succumb to this gravitational pull, or even if we do not want to sink into the whirlpool, then we have to watch out for these uncountable situations where we normally succumb to the pull or where we uh, sink into the swirl. And the most effective yet very simple remedy to prevent this is mindfulness, awareness. An ever-present awareness together with wise attention, Yoniso Manasikara, this has the power to free us from our habitual responses. So then we can be floating with the current of the river without being caught by any of the obstacles and thereby we can see things as they really are. 
when we can avoid being caught by humans, non-humans, or sink into the whirlpool, as well as avoiding other obstacles that prevent us from reaching the ocean, then we will be sure to get to the ocean of Nibbana one day. Let's sit for a few moments. May all beings be very swiftly carried down to the ocean of Nibbana. Let's do the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, <clears throat> may all desires and attachments quickly cease 
and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.